RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. My name is Peter Mansfield and I'm a partner at law firm RPC. Now usually on this podcast I have a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. But this August we are doing something different. Instead of our normal fortnightly podcast we are releasing two episodes a week. So eight episodes in total in a series entitled Meditations on Insurance and Society. So, welcome to Meditations on Insurance and Society. In these eight meditations, we examine the role that insurance has played throughout history in shaping society. These meditations will incorporate a bit of philosophy, some psychology, a dash of anthropology, a few film references, a lot of insurance, and who knows what else. Think of it as a podcast blockbuster. This second meditation is called An Irreligious Faith, and in it, I build on the story that we started in Meditation 1. We ended that meditation with The Code of Hammurabi, and the first appearance of proto-insurance in all its proto-glory. In this meditation, we will explore how this proto-insurance evolved over the subsequent centuries, and in particular, how it evolved in parallel with religious faith. I argue that insurance is a form of faith, and religion is a form of insurance, and that the relationship between the two provides unexpected insights into the nature of both. It is a fascinating story, and it starts here. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter 1. The Ordnung of the Old Order Amish Many people will be aware of the Amish community from the 1985 movie Witness, starring Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis, both of them at the peak of their careers. And for any Viggo Mortensen fans, it was also his first film. Witness was a great movie. The legendary Japanese director Akira Kurosawa described it as one of his favourite films of all time. Harrison Ford received the one and only Oscar nomination of his career for Best Actor and the film itself was nominated for the Best Picture Oscar, losing to Out of Africa. This was a travesty of justice because Out of Africa was awful. Anyway. If you haven't seen Witness, please find it and watch it. You won't regret it. The plot is very simple. An Amish woman, played by Kelly McGillis, and her son, a young Lucas Haas, are travelling by train to the woman's sister. Whilst waiting in a station for a connecting train, the boy goes to the toilet where he witnesses a brutal murder. This young Amish boy is the witness in the title of the movie. A detective, the Harrison Ford character, is assigned to the case and he soon realises that the mother and son need protection. So he takes them back to their Amish community. As it so happens, he is also at risk, so he decides to stay. As he lives among the Amish, he too becomes a witness to a different way of life, the Amish way of life, a life of community values, self-sufficiency and simple living. The history of the Amish, or more properly the Old Order Amish, goes back to 1693, a time when many small Christian communities formed across parts of Europe. In that year, Jacob Amman split from the Swiss and Alsatian Mennonite Anabaptist Church. Those who subsequently followed Amman became known as the Amish. In the early 18th century, many Amish and many Mennonites emigrated to Pennsylvania which is why the Amish are now found only in the US and Canada. They have communities in several states, with the most notable being in Indiana, Ohio and Pennsylvania. The Amish believe in rural life, manual labour and gelassenheit, which is variously translated as calmness, composure or submission to God's will. They have a strongly anti-individualist belief, 
which is why they reject technologies that are labour-saving, such as cars and telephones. They believe that the use of technology may result in a person being less reliant on the community. Whilst the Amish allowed witness to be filmed in their community, and they helped as carpenters and electricians, they refused to act as extras. The extras in the film were therefore played mainly by Mennonites from neighbouring communities. The rules of the Amish church are set out in the Ordnung, which has been loosely translated as the rules, but that probably makes it sound too much like a legal document. In reality, the Ordnung is just a way of delineating the traditional Amish way of life. The rules in the Ordnung are not immutable. Indeed, they may differ from district to district, and they are collectively reviewed twice a year by all members of the church. However, it's probably fair to say that they don't change radically. That is not the Amish way. Some examples of rules within the Ordnung are that a member of the Amish community must not travel on an aeroplane and that church members must not be photographed, which is why they refuse to act as extras in the film. And then there's the one that interests us. According to the Ordnung, commercial insurance is forbidden. Insurance, amongst the Amish, is not allowed. As far as the Amish are concerned, insurance is inconsistent with their Christian values. The question that we will seek to answer in this episode is, what is it about insurance that causes them to believe that? And why is this view not necessarily shared by other Christian or religious groups? And as we investigate these questions, we will find that the links between religion and insurance run surprisingly deep. Chapter 2. The Goddess of Love and War Now, I appreciate, of course, that religion and religious history is not everyone's cup of tea. But if you're listening to this podcast, I presume it is because you are interested in insurance. Therefore, please stick with it, because I think you'll find that the more you learn about the history of religion, the more you'll learn about the nature of insurance. Now, when considering the history of religion, a good place to start is death, or more accurately, burials. Because the one thing you learn when you start reading about the history of religion is that archaeologists and anthropologists love burials. They absolutely adore them. Because the commonly held belief is that burials are linked to the development of some form of belief in the afterlife. Now, the first human species to bury their dead may have been our old friends, the Neanderthals, possibly as far back as 300,000 years ago. There is evidence that they dug shallow graves and placed bones or stone tools alongside the body. In fact, the, the more I read about Neanderthals, the more I think that they've had a really bad press. I mean, they just seem to be nice, thoughtful people, and I, I think I've got on quite well with them. I mean, they seem to be the sort of people you'd want as neighbours. Anyway, be that as it may, our story is about Homo sapiens, and the earliest known burials for Homo sapiens took place around 100,000 years ago, although, as ever, the precise dates are contested. Now, alongside burials, another possible indicator of religious development is cave art, and the first cave art was painted around 45,000 years ago, and this may have indicated a development in our use of the symbolic. And then around 30 or 35,000 years ago, small statuettes of women started to appear throughout Europe. These statuettes mostly had wide hips, but, rather weirdly, they had no arms or feet and often had no head or were faceless. These are called Venus figurines and they have been found across Europe and all the way to Siberia. And one theory for them is that they were an early indication of a belief in some form of overarching goddess figure. But whilst these things may indicate some sort of religious belief, they equally might not. Our attempts to grasp why people did as they did back then are inevitably diluted by speculation. I mean, good grief, most of the time I don't even understand what's going on in my own head. So what hope do we have in understanding what went on inside the heads of people 
many, many thousands of years ago. In the first meditation, we mentioned the hunter-gatherer site of Goblehi Tepe, which dates to 9000 BC, and the later city of Katalhoyuk, dating from 7500 BC. In both of those, there is evidence of possible religious activity, but even if that is correct, we do not know what form that religious activity took, nor, more importantly, do we know how it was experienced by the individuals who were there. Did they merely experience a general sense of the numinous, or was it something more? Did they, for example, believe in specific gods and goddesses? Well, I mean, we don't know. But we do know that at some point, either then or or subsequently, religious experience began to centre around deities, and that these deities were given names. So who was the first named god, the Neil Armstrong of deities? This is inevitably disputed. Uh, It might have been Enki or Anu. But let's look briefly at the credentials for the goddess Inanna. It is possible that Inanna was worshipped as long ago as 4000 or even 5000 BC. She was a goddess of love, war and fertility and was, possibly, a predecessor of, or at least an influence on, the later Greek goddess Aphrodite and the Roman goddess Venus. The worship of Inanna continued under various names until around 500 AD. And more recently, she has become an important figure in modern feminist theory. As an example, she makes an appearance in Simone de Beauvoir's classic book, The Second Sex. Now, why am I mentioning all this? Well, partly it is because I find it fascinating. Partly it is because my daughter is a big fan of Inanna, describing her as badass. But largely, it is because the appearance of the first named gods and goddesses occurred in Sumeria. Yeah, that's the same Sumeria that we discussed in Meditation 1, the ancient civilization located in modern-day Iraq that developed writing, trade and urban living, three of the fundamental prerequisites for the development of insurance. Now, It probably wasn't the Sumerians who first invented insurance, as far as we are aware, that honour fell on the Babylonians, but it was in the same geographical region. So insurance first arose in the same geographical area in which gods and goddesses were apparently first named. Okay, I I sense that some of you may currently be rolling your eyes at the weakness of the observation, and of course I accept that the naming of gods started many hundreds or even thousands of years before the first written evidence of insurance was carved into the basalt pillar that we now know as the Code of Hammurabi. And of course, I'm not saying that the two are causally connected with each other. Correlation is not causation and all that. But as we will see in a moment, neither is the link purely coincidental. So let's go a bit deeper and ask, what was it that first caused humans to think more specifically about naming gods and goddesses. Chapter 3. Making Peace with Randomness In a 2018 article in Psychology Today, Dr David Ludden considered just this question. Why did our ancestors allocate names to gods and goddesses. His conclusion? Urban living. When we live in small groups, either as hunter-gatherers or as with the Amish in villages, everyone knows everyone. Everyone is subject to the ever-watchful eye of the community. As a result, individuals are less likely, at least in theory, to take advantage of others, because if they do, they know that they will be shunned and shamed by their neighbours. But that is not the case in cities. Because in cities, individuals can be anonymous. There is no equivalent of the ever-watchful eye of the community because there is no community. It therefore becomes easy for people to game the system, to take advantage of others. So, according to Ludden's theory, city dwellers created ever-watchful gods who took on the role of the ever-watchful community. It is the gods who now ordered society 
and ensured that everyone played by the rules. Thus, he says, organised religion grew hand in hand with the rise of the city-state. But it is not just that cities needed someone or something to play the role of overarching social architect. Because research by Brett Mercier shows that faith in God increases when situations become uncontrollable. One way for people to reassert control over an unstable situation is to place it in the hands of a god. Or perhaps another way of saying that is people are better able to ride out the vicissitudes of life if they believe in God. Ludden's article makes the same point, actually, ending with the assertion that it is the, open quotes, complexity and unpredictability of the world, close quotes, that encourages a belief in a God who watches over us. Now, this sounds very much as though the development of religion was driven by fear. And not just any fear, but a fear of the future exacerbated by the rise of urban living and the existential crisis that comes from being alone in a city without a support network. Does that sound familiar? Well, it might do if you've listened to the first meditation, because in that podcast, I argued that this exact same fear, a fear of the future driven by urban living, was the impetus behind the creation of insurance. One conclusion that we can tentatively draw, therefore, is that both religion and insurance arise from the same root cause our fear of the unknown and the human ability to catastrophize. Insurance and religion are therefore two different ways to prepare for an uncertain future. They are two different ways of trying to control the future. They are two different ways to make peace with randomness. So it is perhaps no surprise that they appeared during the same general period of history and in the same general location. But does that mean that the two are in competition? Well, I mean, very possibly, yes. And perhaps it is this analysis that partly explains why the Amish see in insurance a threat to their own beliefs in God. Because they see insurance as an irreligious response to a spiritual problem. And who knows? Perhaps they are right. Chapter 4. A Brief Theological Aside With all this talk of gods, I briefly want to make one observation because I don't want to offend anyone. In many of the books on the origins of religion or the history of Homo sapiens, there is an assumption that the gods are a human invention and therefore fictitious. As the comedian David Bedeal puts it in his book, The God Desire, humans cannot bear to look directly at the face of death and so have invented the face of God as a shield. That is also the narrative presented by Yuval Noah Harari in his bestseller Sapiens. Joseph Henrik, in his book The Weirdest People in the World, where weird is an acronym for Western-educated, industrialised, rich and democratic, is even blunter. These beliefs evolved not because they are accurate representations of reality, but because they help communities, organisations and societies to beat their competitors. Both Henrik and Harari proceed on the assumption that gods are fictitious, that they are nothing more than an invention of the human imagination. However, that assumption is not logically justified, or more accurately, the belief that gods are fictitious is just one way of interpreting humanity's fascination with the divine. The other explanation is that god or gods or goddesses is or are objectively real. They genuinely exist. After all, if there is such a thing as a god or goddess, then it is entirely logical that humans with our infinite curiosity, would at some point search for the divine and would start creating pictures in words and images of how that divine entity might be. And that is exactly what we do see. In other words, 
What we see in history is precisely what you would expect to see if the existence of gods or goddesses was an objective reality. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that god or gods or goddesses do actually exist. The alternative narrative, namely that gods are fictitious, entirely created by the human imagination, also fits the facts. As such, we have two diametrically opposed narratives that are equally consistent with the evidence. First, that gods do not exist and humans created them for their own purposes. Alternatively, that gods do exist and humans have discovered them, just as they later discovered other objective truths such as electricity or nuclear fusion. Put another way, the objective evidence of gods is completely unconnected to our subjective beliefs or non-beliefs about those gods. What I think makes not a jot of difference to the question of whether there is or is not a god. Of course, we do not know which one of these two narratives is the correct one, and ultimately, for our story, it does not matter whether gods and goddesses do or do not objectively exist. For our purposes, the interesting observation is that it was our uncertainty about the future and our desire to exert some control over the future that was at the root of both our invention of insurance and our search for God. The two ideas developed in parallel. Here endeth my brief theological aside. Chapter 5. East and West, Land and Sea Let's now return to 1755 BC and the Babylonians. And let's recap the origins of insurance that we discussed more fully in the first meditation. In that meditation, I explained that Babylonian traders were travelling further and further to obtain the luxury goods desired by the growing cities of Babylonia. These trips needed to be financed, and the standard position was that Babylonian traders would obtain loans from merchants or financiers. These loans would, of course, need to be repaid together with a fixed rate of interest. And if the traders were unable to repay the loan, for any reason, they would lose everything. They and their families would potentially be sold into slavery or some such awfulness. The entirety of the risk, therefore, rested with the trader. However, at some point prior to 1755 BC, an alternative was invented. If the trader agreed to pay a higher rate of interest, a premium, the lender would in return agree to take an element of the risk. For example, if the trader was unable to repay the loan because he had been robbed or attacked, then the lender would agree to waive repayment. To put this into more modern terminology, on the happening of a specified peril, the financial risk would transfer from the insured, i.e. the trader, to the insurer i.e. the lender. As we will explain later, this Babylonian arrangement was not the same as modern insurance. So today this arrangement is not actually called insurance, it is called, aha, something else, and we'll come back to that later. In the meantime, let's call it Babylonian insurance. In the centuries following 1755 BC, Babylonian insurance travelled east and west along the established trade routes. And in the same period, we also see the development of religion, both to the east and the west. Now, I'm not suggesting that one caused the other, nor that these routes traded both goods and gods. My point is simply that the two things developed in tandem. In the east, one of the great early civilizations was based in the Indus Valley, on the eastern edge of Pakistan, along the border with India. The Indus Valley Civilization began around 3300 BC, which means that it coincided with the Egyptian and Sumerian civilizations. And similar to those other civilizations, the Indus Valley also saw the development of large cities, such as Mohenjo-Dari and Harappa. And with the development of cities came the development of religion, possibly, possibly including the precursors of Hinduism. Now, 
I should emphasize that the precise origins of Hinduism are highly contested. Whilst many regard it as the oldest of the modern world religions, its roots are unclear and they may or may not stretch back into the deep history of the Indus Valley civilization. Whatever the truth on that, though, the Indus Valley civilization definitely did not survive to see Hinduism develop into the faith system that we see today. Because Hinduism became more formalised, if, if that's the right word, between 800 BC and 200 BC, at which time the lines between Hinduism, Jainism and Buddhism became clearer. However, this was a long time after the demise of the Indus Valley civilization, which had happened around 1300 BC. Around the same sort of time, perhaps even earlier, Babylonian insurance was introduced to the region. We know this because Babylonian insurance is referenced in the Sanskrit code of law known as the Manusmriti or the Manava Dharmasastra. Modern scholarship suggests that this code was written in the 2nd or 3rd century BC, but they also accept that it was probably based on earlier writings and laws. Paragraph 156 of the Manusmriti says, A lender at interest on the risk of safe carriage who has agreed on the place and time, shall not receive such interest if, by accident, the goods are not carried to the place or within the time. As can be seen, this is an evolved version of Babylonian insurance. Under Babylonian insurance, on the happening of the specified peril, the whole loan was waived. Under the manusmriti, only the interest payment was waived. However, in return, the specified peril was much broader. It arose whenever the breach was caused by accident. The Manusmriti is also important for a further reason, because in the very next paragraph, it refers to a fundamental development in the evolution of Babylonian insurance. That fundamental development was the application of Babylonian insurance to marine trade. Actually, to be fair, the Babylonians may have done it themselves, but we just don't have the evidence that they did so. Anyway, a similar evolution, but even more pronounced, occurred when Babylonian insurance moved west. Because if you travel west from Babylon, it is not long before you hit the Mediterranean and the maritime nation of Phoenicia. And if Babylonian insurance was going to succeed in Phoenicia and the Mediterranean, it would have to adapt to seagoing ways which means that at this stage in our narrative, we can stop calling this early form of insurance Babylonian insurance and we can start using the English word for it. Now, I have resisted using the word so far because it has inherent comedic value. The word is bottomry. Chapter 6 how to make trade boring. Before I talk about bottomry, I have a, um, a confession to make. The story of bottomry up to this point is not nearly as certain as I have made out. For example, uh, the relevant paragraph in the Manusmriti can be translated in a way that means it isn't about bottomry at all. And there is no evidence, I mean, you know, you know, primary source evidence, that the Phoenicians ever used bottomry ever. Even the Code of Hammurabi has other possible explanations. So, a lot of our story so far has involved a degree of educated guesswork. It is a story that makes sense, but that doesn't necessarily make it true. However, you'll be relieved to hear that from here on in, our story is a little more rooted in historical evidence. So sit back and enjoy. Bottomry is a maritime contract that involves a loan that is secured on the hull or bottom of the ship, hence the name bottomry. However, a bottomry loan does not need to be repaid if the ship is lost at sea. In other words, it is very similar conceptually to Babylonian insurance. Linked to bottomry is respondentia, Whereas bottomry is a loan secured on the hull of the ship, respondentia is a loan secured on the ship's cargo. So the modern divide between hull insurance and cargo insurance 
reflects the historic divide between bottomry and respondentia. Despite the fact that we had taken an episode and a half to get to this point, we are now going to fly through the remaining history of bottomry because ultimately it proved to be a commercial dead end. Which is a very harsh analysis because whilst it existed, bottomry was transformational. And for over 3,000 years, bottomry was the dominant form of insurance. And it was also fundamental to the development of ancient Greece and Rome. In a fascinating blog, the historian Dan Wang explains that the cities of Athens and Rome were entirely dependent on food transported by sea. This is because it was cheaper to transport grain by ship from Egypt to Rome than it was to transport it by cart from, say, 100 miles down the road. This was because the oxen or horses pulling the cart would need to eat almost as much grain as they were pulling. Rome and Athens grew rich and large on the strength of their ports. And in order to maintain maritime trade, bottomry loans were essential. As Wang says, 2,000 years ago, bottomry was essential to the survival of some of the world's first great cities. Now, despite the lack of hard evidence, it seems most likely that it was the Phoenicians who first learned about bottomry from the Babylonians. And because the Phoenicians were the pre-eminent maritime traders of the Mediterranean, it quickly spread from there. By 350 BC, bottomry had undoubtedly arrived in Greece, because it was mentioned in one of Demosthenes' orations. But it had probably been around well before then, and unsurprisingly, the Greeks adapted it for their own purposes. For example, the lenders of ancient Athens developed what we would now call a subscription market. Each individual lender would spread their risk by investing and insuring small amounts across many voyages. Unsurprisingly, the Romans also used bottomry, calling it Felis Nauticum, which translates as marine interest. Now, it is a truth universally acknowledged that, for whatever reason, throughout history, insurance has never generated the respect that it deserves. And, true to historical form, the ancients were rather sniffy about bottomry. Plutarch dismissively described the underwriting of ships as being the most disreputable form of speculation. But as Dan Wang says, it's clear that ancient Rome would not have become a wonder of the ancient world if it weren't for the existence of an insurance industry that made trade boring, profitable and dependable. So possibly for the first time, the existence of insurance was influencing the development of society, making possible developments that otherwise would have remained impossible. But these commercial developments could not have been achieved without the additional involvement of religion, because commercial promises were invariably backed by religious oaths. For example, Joseph Henrik, in his book The Weirdest People in the World, says in relation to the Athenians that their intense reliance on the gods and on such oaths may help explain their enduring reputation for trustworthiness in both business and treaty making. And this statement could have been made with equal force with reference to the Romans. So it was the combination of religion and insurance that transformed Greek and Roman economic society. The two worked hand in hand. But all good things come to an end and Bottomry's heyday abruptly concluded with the fall of the Roman Empire. At that point, all hull broke loose, and, and the bottom fell out of the Bottomry market. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, it's true that Bottomry re-emerged in the 12th century, at a time when educated merchants started studying Roman law and decided that Bottomry was a good wheeze. And it has existed ever since, in various forms and under various names, but it has never been common. For example, Samuel Pepys, in his famous diaries, includes just four references to bottomry, or bummery, as he amusingly calls it once. The most extensive reference is on 16th of November, 1660, when he wrote about a man who wanted to borrow money from Pepys. He seems to do it as a great favour to me to offer to come in upon a way of getting money which they call bottomry, 
which I do not yet understand, but do believe there may be something in it of great profit. As an aside, did you know that Pepys, when he was 22, married Elizabeth de Saint-Michel, who was, at the time, 14 years old? Yes, I know, exactly, that's my thoughts precisely. Anyway, the fact that Pepys, in 1660, had not previously heard of bottomry confirms that it was an unusual form of transaction. Of course, there is nothing illegal even now about bottomry, so in theory it still exists today as a form of loan. Indeed, from a UK perspective, it has a whole section to itself in the Marine Insurance Act of 1906. Section 10 of that Act states that the lender of money on bottomry or respondentia has an insurable interest in respect of the loan. Apart from anything else, this section confirms that, from a legal perspective, bottomry is considered a form of insurance. And there's more. A mere 23 years ago, in the year 2000, bottomry was mentioned in the Civil Jurisdiction and Judgments Act 1982 open brackets amendment close brackets order. Huzzah! Bottomry lives! Although it doesn't really. I mean, these references, even the one in the 1906 Marine Insurance Act, are in truth echoes of a long-dead commercial practice. Because bottomry has now been replaced in its entirety by modern premium-based insurance. Chapter 7 your divine and immortal soul. So, there you have it. That was, rather succinctly, the story of Bottomry. Rather appropriately, we must now put Bottomry behind us and move on to our next story, the story of modern premium-based insurance. But in the context of this meditation, which is all about the links between insurance and religion, I have one more thing to say. Well, kind of, sort of, perhaps two things. The first is that bottomry differs from modern premium-based insurance in at least one important respect. With bottomry, the insurance element is part and parcel of the loan, which means that the insured will always get something. It will get the loan. Contrast that with modern insurance, where the insured pays a premium up front, which means that it is immediately out of pocket, and in return the insured receives... Well, what is it that the insured does actually receive? Because unlike bottomry, they don't receive a loan. Instead, all they receive is a promise. A promise that in a specified situation, the insurer will provide the insured with an indemnity. So to repeat, modern insurance involves a payment for a promise. It is therefore a transaction based on faith. And this faith element can be seen because when the insured pays the premium, which may be a payment of many, many thousands of pounds, it has no idea if the insurer will still exist when the indemnity is required, nor that the insurer will actually pay up. I mean, with bottomry, at least the insured gets something tangible, the loan. With modern insurance, the insured gets nothing. You could not get anything more quasi-religious in the commercial setting. In fact, let's compare it for a moment to the sale of religious indulgences in 16th century Germany, a practice that was condemned by Martin Luther and which played its part in the Protestant Reformation. Indulgences were grants or letters sold by the church to allow people to speed up their progress through purgatory to heaven after their deaths. It was a form of afterlife insurance. One of the leading salesmen for indulgences, the Dominican monk Johann Tetzel, would say, Won't you part with even a farthing? It won't bring you money, but rather a divine and immortal soul, whole and secure in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you pay me money, you will in return receive a promise of protection for your soul. Now, how different is that really from a refrigerator salesperson selling you a three-year insurance policy 
to cover the cost of repairs. Won't you part with even six pounds, they say. It won't save your divine and immortal soul, but it will give you money if your fridge breaks down. In other words, if you pay me money, you will in return receive a promise of protection for your newly purchased white goods, which is something for you to feel smeg about. So the purpose of both indulgences and insurance is to provide reassurance to the purchaser that the purchaser does not need to worry about the future. Why? Because they bought a promise. And that is the nature of insurance. Because ultimately, insurance is a form of faith, albeit an irreligious faith. Chapter 8 a theology of insurance. So now, to conclude, we must return to our opening question. Why do the Amish believe that insurance is wrong? And why is this belief not shared by other Christian groups? And what does this teach us about insurance? At this point, I should acknowledge that I am looking at this through the lens of Christianity. For better or for worse, that is my tradition. I'm not qualified nor do I feel it is appropriate for me to comment on the beliefs of other religions. So subject, that here goes. In Jesus' most famous speech, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Those are all the kind of things that those who don't know God fuss about, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. The key phrase here is, do not worry about tomorrow. Now, according to the Amish, insurance is an archetypal example of worrying about tomorrow. And as we have seen, they are right, at least to an extent, Insurance is a response to our fears for the future. Insurance could therefore be interpreted as evidence of a lack of faith in God. But for the Amish, there is a second element to their dislike of insurance, and that is because insurance also shows a lack of faith in the community. If the house of an Amish person burns down, the community will rally round and will build that person a new home. If someone has hospital bills, everyone in the community will contribute to pay those bills. For the Amish, a crisis for one person is an opportunity for the whole community to respond. An individual within the Amish community can therefore trust that the community will support them in their moment of need. As such, why would they need insurance? As long as their faith in their community is strong, insurance is not needed. You can therefore see why insurance is banned. It undermines their fundamental sense of community. If an individual buys insurance, they are in effect saying to everyone else, I don't need you. Or even worse, I don't trust you. For them, insurance is intrinsically selfish. You are trying to solve your problems yourself rather than relying on others which all sounds very persuasive. So, why is it that most Christian traditions do not share that belief? The great American novelist, William Faulkner, once wrote, The past is never dead. It is not even past. All of us labour in webs spun long before we were born. His point was that the past always lives with us in the present. Our experiences, our memories, our inheritance, our upbringing, all of them affect the way in which we act today. Now, this might be a good thing or a bad thing, but either way, the past is never past, because our yesterdays affect our today. And I think that Jesus' point when he said, do not worry about tomorrow, is that this is equally true of the future. Our hopes or our concerns about the future will affect us in the here and now. In particular, 
if we are anxious about tomorrow, then that will rob us of joy today. It is that anxiety that Jesus is warning against, that ability that we have as humans to worry, to catastrophize so much about tomorrow that we forget about today. In my opinion, Jesus wasn't saying, don't think about tomorrow or don't plan for tomorrow. He was saying, don't let that thinking or planning dominate your enjoyment of today. So where does insurance fit into this? The Reverend Charles Spurgeon was a preacher from the 19th century. In his day, he was something of a celebrity, an influencer, attracting huge crowds. On 7th of October, 1857, a crowd of 23,654 listened to him speak at the Crystal Palace. And when he died in 1892, 100,000 people walked past his coffin or attended one of the funeral services. Plus, there was an unknown number of people who lined the streets as his funeral cortege went past. Spurgeon's full name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and my grandfather, who was born in 1900, was also given the middle name Haddon in honour of Spurgeon. Because Haddon is a great name, as well as being a family name, my son's middle name is also Haddon. But Spurgeon was not just a preacher. He also founded an almshouse and an orphanage, and he encouraged his congregation to work amongst the poor of London. As such, he had first-hand knowledge of the destitution caused when the main wage earner in a family died without providing for his wife and children. Perhaps unsurprisingly, therefore, Spurgeon's attitude towards insurance differed from that of the Amish. As he put it, If I were a man struggling in life and had in my power to insure for something which would take care of my wife and family in after days and did not do it, you might preach to me all eternity about not taking thought for the morrow, but I could not help doing it when I saw those I loved around me unprovided for. Let it be in God's word I could not practice it. I should still be, at some time or other, taking thought for the morrow. But let me go to one of the many excellent institutions that exist and see that all is provided for. I come home and say, now I know how to practice Christ's command for taking no thought for the morrow. I pay the policy money once a year and take no further thought about it, for I have no occasion to do so now, having obeyed the very spirit and letter of Christ's command. That was a very long-winded way for Spurgeon to say that insurance was a way of not worrying about the future. But I want to finish this episode with a quotation from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a theologian and pastor in the Lutheran Church. He was born in Germany in 1906, which meant that he watched firsthand as Hitler rose to power. Bonhoeffer was a vocal opponent of the Nazis. In 1939, aware that war was imminent, he escaped to America. But he quickly regretted his decision and he chose to return to Germany, despite knowing that he was walking back into danger. During the war, he worked for a military intelligence organisation and used that as cover to act as a courier for the German resistance movement, helping German Jews escape to Switzerland. Perhaps inevitably, in April 1943, he was arrested by the Gestapo and was transferred to Buchenwald and then Flossenburg concentration camps. In the following passage, he discusses the balance between the future and the present, planning for the future whilst living each day without fear and anxiety. Whilst he never mentions insurance, unsurprisingly his thoughts are more focused on slightly larger political issues, his argument stands as a theological justification for insurance. For most people, not to plan for the future means to live irresponsibly and frivolously, to live just for the moment, while some few continue to dream of better lives to come. But we cannot take either of these courses. We are still left with only the narrow way, a way often hardly to be found, of living every day as if it were our last yet in faith and responsibility living as though a splendid future still lay before us, thinking and acting for the sake of the coming generation, but taking each day as it comes without fear and anxiety. That is the spirit 
in which we are being forced to live in practice. It is not easy to be brave and hold out, but it is imperative. This approach further acts as a philosophy of life, a philosophy in which insurance plays its part to ensure that we can face each day without fear and anxiety. Because insurance is a faith transaction, one that removes the worry of what may occur tomorrow in order to enable us to live in the fullness of today. We are still left with only the narrow way, Bonhoeffer said, a way often hardly to be found, of living every day as if it were our last, yet in faith and responsibility, living as though a splendid future still lay before us. On 9th of April 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by hanging, aged 39. One month later, Germany surrendered and the war in Europe was over. Thank you for listening to this second meditation. In the next meditation, entitled The Beneficial Selfishness of Strangers, we will examine the birth of modern premium-based insurance in 14th century Italy. And we will explain why a further development in 17th century London was required before insurance could become the insurance that we know and love today, with all the unique features that have enabled it to shape the modern world. Here's an extract to whet your appetite. If I want to buy car insurance, then, putting aside regulatory issues, I could purchase it from anyone. A bloke down the pub, the website dodgyinsurance.com, or even an entrepreneurial five-year-old. And similarly, if I sold car insurance, I could sell it to anyone. One of the defining features of modern insurance is its anonymity. I buy car insurance, but I do not know the insurer and I do not know any of the other insureds. We are strangers. I buy my insurance for selfish reasons, yet my premium goes into a pool. And if I do not have a claim that year, then my premium will be used to benefit someone else. Modern insurance is therefore based on the beneficial selfishness of strangers. That's the genius of what was created 700 years ago in Pisa, or possibly Genoa, or perhaps somewhere else. But, and of course, there is a but. That's not quite how it looked in the 1300s, nor indeed for a very long time after. So I hope you'll join us on Monday for the next meditation on insurance and society. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.